oh, we're relationship-based. Everything's about the relationship. But when you look at how they monetize things, it's all based on services, scope of work, how long is it going to take, efforts. It doesn't necessarily look at the outcomes. And I think we need to up our game and get back to the outcomes that we can provide as professionals. That's the voice of Ron Baker, the co-host of my favorite podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. And behind his back, I do call him the modern-day Peter Drucker, and that's evidenced by the books he's authored and the thousands of presentations he's given around the globe on killing, I mean obliterating, the billable hour, value pricing, and now a shift to the subscription economy for professional firms. Ron's new book is Time's Up. He co-wrote it with his friend Paul Dunn. And you don't have to work in a professional services firm to enjoy this conversation. As you're going to hear about other businesses such as Fender, Adobe, Target, and, and others. I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf. My visit with Ron Baker is coming up next. Gary Boomer of Boomer Consulting, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Gary, he would never remember me, but in one of his Kansas City workshops, he held up three books and I read all three of them. One of those he held up back in 2004 was Firm of the Future by Ron Baker and Paul Dunn. I loved it. And I have been following and studying Ron's work ever since. And then I hit the lottery when he and Ed Kless started their podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. This is Ron's third appearance on the show, and we're going to talk about his newest book, again, co-written with his friend Paul Dunn. The title is Time's Up, the Subscription Business Model for Professional Firms. And I promise you, I'm going to give it my best shot to pluck out some of the big ideas in this very thought-provoking book. Ron Baker. So as I'm wrapping up your book, I'm thinking the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the greatest documents ever written, signed in U.S. history. So when the slaves heard that, there were probably at least three responses. There are probably more. Let's just keep this to three. One group heard it and believed it and acted on it at great cost, probably. And then you have another group who heard the Emancipation Proclamation. Either A, didn't believe it or didn't want to believe it and nothing changed. And then you had a third group who never heard it ever, or at least for a while. So as I'm thinking about your book, I'm thinking of two types of readers. I would say that this book is not for the people who don't want to believe it. It's for the people who do believe in the subscription economy and the people who have not heard it. Did I get this right? Am I in the ballpark? Oh, absolutely. No, I, you know, you're very familiar with the diffusion curve right? With a two and a half percent innovators and then the 13 and a half or so percent of early adopters and then the early majority, late majority and laggards. Firm of the future, when we wrote that 20 years ago, 
we were dealing with the two and a half percent early adopters. Now that that's kind of infused into the culture of professional firms, we're probably at the early majority stage with the ideas from the firm of the future. With this book, Time's Up, we're we're back into that two and a half percent. I'm only going after the two and a half percent with this book. That's an interesting segue because, Ron, do you know when you have arrived in life, it's when you are, it's not when you write a book, it's when you're quoted in your own book. <laughs> I, want to, I want to read a quote in your own book, a, a Ron Baker quote in your own book. I, I just think that sounds so cool. So cool. My mission is to bury the billable hour. I want it inscribed on my tombstone that that is precisely what I achieved in life. Is your mission 50% complete, 75% complete? We know it's not 100% complete. How no, close? Nowhere near it. Not even near it. So that's nope, not, not, not with, with value pricing, we're pretty good. We're probably 40%. With the timesheet, we might be at 10 to 15%. We still got a ways to go. Wow. I, I, and I, I'm having a hard time fathoming that. That does not make sense to me. So the name of the book is Time's Up, the subtitle, and I'm holding my hand, love the cover, the subscription business model for professional firms. I'm going to come back to that subtitle in a minute. I I want to know if there's some Ron Bakerism in this subtitle, but let me ask this question first. Let's pretend like one year from now, one year from now, you are in a auditorium with 100 partners of professional firms. They've read the book. You now are speaking to them and you ask them the question, where are you or what did you think? What kind of answers do you hope to hear from just a handful of the audience? Wow. Um, Well, I I will be in that position in about six months um, in St. Louis, actually at Scaling New Heights. Um, I guess I'd want to hear that they've implemented it, that they've tried it, that they put their toe in the water and that they found it successful. They found it easier. They found it more liberating to be a relation-based firm rather than a transactional-based firm. Because if you, if you look at how even value pricing or hourly billing, it's still a fee for service model. We're still, you know, one trades dollars for hours, the other trades services for dollars. And I think both of them are a treadmill. I mean, it's just like a hamster wheel. So if we really put the relationship at the center of the firm, we say we do, Mark, all professional firms will tell you on their website, oh, we're relationship-based. Everything's about the relationship. But when you look at how they monetize things, it's all based on services, scope of work, how long is it going to take, efforts. It doesn't necessarily look at the outcomes. And I think we need to up our game and get back to the outcomes that we can provide as professionals. Great point. Here's a potential answer. Here's an answer I would love to hear. Ron, my name is Bill. We have 15 people and we do a lot of estate planning. And yes, I I believe that there can be a subscription model there. That can be a topic for another day. I really think it's possible. I'm just using that as an example. So I stand up and I say, Ron, we did this. 
and it was hard. It was really hard. But there's something you talk about in your book. I didn't really get it, and now I do. It's a whole concept of transformation. I Now I really get it. And I just want to say thank you for the book because I didn't think we could do this. But we did. It's hard. We saved the course. But now I would never go back. Would that be an answer you would accept? Yes. In fact, that's the uh, the answer that we got when people read my first book or The Firm of the Future. Uh, we And we still hear that to this day, which is the most gratifying thing in the world. It is like crack cocaine. It's the most addictive thing. Um, so, yeah, I would be I would be thrilled with that. I'm just trying to get us back to our roots, Mark. I mean, if you ask any CPA, why did you enter the profession? You will hear to help people. Okay, well, you can't help people if you got a thousand customers. Right. Relationships aren't scalable. I, and I just want to go back to, okay, let's let's be impact driven. We've got to be, and I, I know putting impact and driven <laughs> together doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't want that when you're driving, but, but to have a meaningful uh, impact on our customers' lives, we as professionals can guide them to a new place. Not many other businesses can do that when you really think about it, because they're constrained by a physical product, you know, Porsche, sure. They can help me through my midlife crisis and they can, you know, help me make my neighbors jealous, but they're really not going to transform me as a person, but a professional has the ability to guide somebody from where they are to where they want to be. And that is the most powerful thing in the world. Also, it's the highest form of value. There's nothing beyond that. Um, you know, what's beyond it is based upon your religious beliefs or your, you know, your spiritual beliefs, but here on the mortal coil, the best we can do is guide transformations. And when you think about the memorabilia we have in our lives, they all revolve around transformations, you know, whether it's uh, medals and ribbons from your, your time in the military, whether it's your diploma, whether it's your wedding ring. Uh, you know, these are all deep, meaningful transformations that changed us as a person. And we have that ability. We can help people retire sooner, grow their business. We can help them plan their legacy um, with, with estate planning. We can do all these things as professionals because we're not tied to a physical product. And I just think that's incredible. This book, Time's Up, showed up on my doorstep. I want to say in December, I looked at the subtitle. And I don't know if I was reading into this or reading into something I shouldn't have, but I'm just wondering, does this have Ron Baker written all over it? So again, it says the subscription business model for professional firms. I'm accentuating the two words, professional firms. I looked at what word was missing. And Knowledge. I, well, I professional services firms. Because I kind of know what you think of that term, professional services. Because when I hear the term professional services, I'll say, oh, that's a NASIC code. But professional firms, I'll go back to your word, transformation. Was that on purpose to leave out it, a word after the word professional? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I don't like to say that we're professional services firm. That's not to say that we don't, you know, uh, that service is unimportant, but it's not. It's not a good description of what it is that we do, I don't think. Um, but to be honest with you, Mark, the subtitle is 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 a, is a, is an algorithm almost. I mean, it is the publisher who drafts the subtitle, 
and because they are looking for search keyword optimization on Amazon. I, w- I want to move into the mindset, the mindset that is required or needed. And I even hate to say that because I'm sure there are some people who are just going to jump into this head first, feet first, sideways first. But I'm still going to say getting the the mindset right. This may be for the people who are, I don't, I don't know about this. This is going to be hard. Already doing value building. Why, why even think about subscription? It's not at the beginning of the book, but there are two stories that are outstanding. I loved the story, the inclusion about Fender, and I can't remember what chapter it's in. I don't want to steal your thunder, so I'll let you share it. What did Fender get right? What did they figure out in this context of the subscription economy? This is such a great question because it goes to the very heart of what makes subscription different than a transactional-based model that is focused on SKUs or volume of services, share, you know, how many services can we pile on brick by brick to the customer if we're professionals or how many SKUs can we sell if we're, you know, Hewlett Packard or Fender in the old days? Well, Fender learned that uh, they're the largest guitar manufacturer, I believe, in the world, actually. And they, the CEO was interviewed, I think, in, back in 2016, and he made a really interesting comment. He said, when people buy a guitar, they're incredibly excited. I mean, they have enthusiasm to learn. Maybe they're going to take lessons. He said 95% of them quit within six months. And he says, if they quit, the guitar goes in the closet, under the bed, and I never sell them anything again for the rest of their lives. In fact, he said, in fact, it's worse than that because eventually they're going to give that guitar to somebody else or a charity, and I'm going to lose another sale. <laughs> and so in 2019, I think it was, or maybe it was 16, I'm getting the dates confused, but he started Fender Play and it was a digital library, 3000 videos. I don't know what it's up to today. Uh, just amazing. And it, it taught you how to play the guitar from wherever you were, beginner, intermediate, advanced, probably even beyond. And I think he got up to around 200,000, 260,000 subscribers yep. to Fender Play. And then COVID struck and people were locked in and they were trying new things. You know, we were baking bread and doing all this weird things and learning a foreign language. Well, some people turned to the guitar and he opened up Fender Play. And he gave you a free, I think it was a month or three month trial. And he had 1 million subscribers sign up within like two weeks. It overloaded the system, basically. I think the system shut down for a day or two because of it. But the point was, he said, what we learned from that was we're not selling guitars. We're selling musicianship. Right. And that's this goes to the heart of a business model which is the revenue model question or the revenue question. And that is, what do we want our customers to pay us for? And when you look at Fender, it's not guitars, it's musicianship. I want to be able to play with my friends or at a party to whatever level I I aspire to. And that's really what they're buying. They're not buying the guitar. They're buying the musicianship. And there's lots of other examples uh, that we provide in the book about that, but that's the essence of it. And for the number-centric firm of the future 2.0 professional, 
if they need more uh, evidence, you even state in the book that those subscribers spent 40% more on Fender products than non-subscribers. So if you need more evidence, hey, there, there's some more. And, and one more. In 2020, when they opened up Fender Play to a free trial, and in 2021, and now we have results for 2022, Fender sold more guitars than they ever had in their corporate history in those three years. That is a remarkable number. <laughs> now, I, I can hear the naysayer. Well, okay, Ron, great story. And yes, I was, I'm was i inspired by that. Great story, but that that's a product. So you spend a whole chapter on DPC. Now, by the way, for people who are fans of, of you and Ed Class on your podcast, The Soul of Enterprise, yes, this has come up like, Five shows at least, six that I can think of, rattle off at the top yep. of my head. Yep. But you still have a whole chapter, which I think is critical because, in my opinion, this opinion, you, you can differ. The DPC model may be the best example that anyone in professional services or professional firms can look at as, oh, this is how it can work. Do you believe that DPC, are they the people to look to? Are they the leaders in the space? Absolutely. DPC was my North Star writing this book. Once I landed on the concierge model, uh, which I knew about, by the way, as, as early as 2002, I think, or three, I wrote about it in Pricing on Purpose in 2006. In fact, I quote what I wrote about it. He said it's really annoying that when an author quotes themselves, but I had to because I didn't even have a good term for it, Mark. In pricing on purpose, I call the concierge doctors retainer-based medicine. It's kind of like calling the car, you know, the horseless carriage. We 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 explain the new by grasping at the old or digital wallet for Bitcoin. Not a wallet. But anyway, um, the concierge doctor model, which was started by a guy named Howard Moran. He was the NBA team doctor for the Seattle Sonics. Um and he said, when, the, when one of my players gets injured, he says, I'm on the court. I know everything about these guys. I know what medicines they take. I know what they're allergic to. I know if they have other problems. He says, I can get them back in the game probably really fast. He said, why can't I do that for my patients? He's a general physician. And he said, well, because I have 2,300 of them. I get to spend five minutes with them. I have to see 40 or 60 of them per day. And he said, you can't you can't practice medicine. You can't have that sacred relationship of patient doctor if you have too many patients. So he started MD squared, which is the oldest and the first concierge medical practice in the country. In fact, it's the largest to, to this day. Uh, it's got offices across the country and he limits every doctor to 50 families. Now, when he started Mark, he was something like $13,000 for a couple Two or three thousand per kid. Now he's. When did he start? Nineteen ninety six. And he proved the model just by the expansive growth and what they were doing. And then around two thousand five, six, seven, eight, we saw this the baby cousin to the concierge doctor, which was the direct primary care doctor. Whereas the concierge doctors go after you know, the top 10% of income earners in the country, you know, CEOs, people with more money than time. 
who that's who the concierge doctor was going after the DPC doctors like Dr. Paul, who we've had on the show four times, he's a DPC doc in Detroit. So he's got a lower, uh, you know, income, average income community. He charges less than a hundred dollars a month and he has 600 patients and that's where he maxes out. And this guy has scaled. He's added three doctors. He's, he's about to open up second office and put another one or two doctors in there. And he just brings them up to 600 patients. And then if they want to keep growing, they'll continue to grow. And I look at that and say, that proves the model. We've got the empirical evidence that this works. Uh, and so all the objections that we're hearing, uh, and I always like to say, you know, when we hear these objections, it's the same thing I heard when we published Firm of the Future. History rhymes, right? The dog barks what, at what they don't understand. And a lot of these objections have already been shown to be false just by looking at the DPC docs. So, yeah, they are my North Star. To me, they're the most incredible disruptors and innovators in the last 20 years. And and, and even though I've heard, and by the way, some of the episodes on the Soul of Enterprise, and you're talking about Dr. Paul Thomas, I've listened to some of those more than once. I know it's hard to take notes if you're driving or running wherever you may be listening to this. Try to remember page 115 in the book, page 115 of the book. It gives the reasons to be a DPC, and those reasons will carry over for any type of uh, uh, professional firm you may be running. It is a great, great list discussion. Again, just page 115, read that in the book, please, even if you go do it first. there are, uh, And I'll just say, Mark, between you and me, um, that was my favorite chapter to write in the book. I, I loved it. It was excellent. And even though I knew a lot of it, 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 it was like, it was still like, it was, this is fresh. And it was just, it was uplifting as well. So for anyone who says this can't be done, th- that chapter should dispel. And again, read page 150, 115, memorize it. it. Uh, to, I think there are two questions. And by the way, I, in, in my world, I don't talk about myself very much, which is probably a good thing. It's too boring. I think this is luck. But a lot of the chief executive officers I get to work with, I mean, we are scaling fast or we have scaled fast. I mean, we are like, like jump on the rocket ship, buckle up. And I call some of my own CEOs in front of their back, behind their backs. You are nothing more than this high dopamine, Vern Harnish, Dan Sullivan, Vistage. Uh, I'm running out of examples, but- those are the people that will hear great ideas like, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Now, and there will be a small percentage that will say, let's do this. Let, let's let's do this this subscription model. And I'm even going to say, whoa, what, just, just let's tap the brake. Because I think there are two questions that need to be asked. And by the way, I'm plagiarizing from your book. But here are the two questions, and you just jump in. Question number one, and you've already said this. Question number one, before you do this, what is my customer paying for? What are they paying for? And number two, and I don't know if you can say one's more important than the other, what value, what is the value to this customer? I think before you even think about this, whether you love this model or don't, got to answer those two questions. Agree? 
Absolutely. This, in fact, your second question there was Peter Drucker wrote an entire book called the five most important questions. Yes. You, you, and that was one of them is what is, what is value to the customer? And he said it was the least asked. It was the least explored. It was ignored basically because we thought we knew, <clears throat> well, they're buying drills, they're buying drill bits, What you know, no, they're trying to hang a picture. So they can have memories. And so when you when you think about subscription and you 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 get your focus off the product or the service and you put it on the customer, then you land on things like Fender. No, you're buying musicianship. Or if you subscribe to your Roomba vacuum cleaner, you're not buying a vacuum cleaner and all the little parts that come with it that they mail you automatically. You're buying a cleaner house. <laughs> you know, my landscaper is up he's he's giving me best curbside appeal these these are transformations in their own way in their own limited way if you're dealing with a product but they're still transformations they're taking me to someplace new um and that's the revenue model question which is your first question what is the customer paying us for you've got to reevaluate that because customers are moving targets and i believe that every organization competes with every other organization that has the ability to raise our customers expectations. So what do our customers compare us to today? I promise you it's Amazon. One click, it's here the next day in some cities, the same day. Um, That's tough. I mean, Amazon is customer obsessed. They just started their, what is it called? RX pass where you can get 80 generic drugs for five bucks a month. Unlimited. It's amazing. How How does CVS, how does Walgreens, how do they compete with that? We, in other words, when you go to the market with subscription, I would add a third question. How are we going to plus the offering? How are we going to make it even better and more? You can't go to the market with a common offering. If you go to the market with a common offering, you're going to command a common price. But if you go to the market with an uncommon offering, like Fender did, like Roomba does with its vacuum cleaner, and I might add like Porsche Drive does with its... uh, subscription model where you can access a fleet of cars and you have access to seven models and you can change out every day if you want, if you're that obsessed. Um, and that's a plus offering. It's not just a car. It's now a direct one, one-to-one relationship with Porsche. That's a plus offering. I agree with you, Walt Disney. <laughs> yes. Um, I stole that, stole that from Walt for sure. I have one more mindset thought before we move on, because I want to get into some of the practicalities, some of the pragmatics uh, of a subscription model for professional firms. You've already, you've, you've already said the word, I, I wish I had a clicker, uh, a clicker that counted the number of times you've said the word transformation, but this is theater of the mind. So let's take a plus sign. Let's use your plusing but let's use a plus sign in the upper right-hand corner between 12 o'clock and three o'clock. We write down the word input from three o'clock to six o'clock. We have output. So input output. Now we move from six o'clock to nine o'clock. We have results. And then from uh, nine o'clock to 12 o'clock in the upper left-hand corner, we have outcomes. You hit this hard throughout the book, especially the second half, and even the first half, we talk about transformations. There is a big difference between inputs, outputs, results, 
in outcomes? That's a duh question, but I don't think that can be underscored, right? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I know you had a guy on, didn't you have a guy on who wrote a book about yes. these three things? Yes. Um, and, 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 and I have to say, sometimes we do use the term outcomes kind of synonymously with transformations, but I prefer the word transformation. Because I do I too. It's more powerful I do in too. terms of messaging and value, um, you know, building and that type of thing. But yeah, if, if you look at most companies, they're charging for an output, you know, even a lot of professional firms that do value pricing, forget hourly billing value pricing. They, they think, they are adding more value if they stack up more services brick by brick by brick. The more services we sell, the better, you know, a lot of them have KPIs around how many services does each customer buy. But it's not about the service, just like it's not about the guitar with Bender. It's about uh, musicianship. It's about those transformations. And we're able to deliver them serially. We can do it over and over and over. Fender can't do that. Fender can increase your ability to play the guitar, make you more of an expert, make you you know better musician, which is awesome. But they can't do much more than that. Again, we can help people grow their businesses, plan their legacy, get their kid in college, retire sooner, buy a vacation home. I mean, you name it. We can do one transformation after another from womb to tomb. And that's just incredibly liberating. And we need to stop focusing on inputs and outputs because that's not what the customer's buying. They're buying that transformation. And that's the, that's the kernel to success with subscription is to find out what is it that the customer is deriving from your service? How is it's not, it's not subscribing to your firm so much as how does it impact them? How does it change their life if they subscribe to your firm? I can't get David Meister out of my head and you bring him up in the book. I think of if we're not thinking about transformations, we're probably putting more emphasis on being the technician as opposed yep. to the transformer. And again, that's, again, that, that's a convert. That's another 30 minute conversation. But again, I, I just, I, I really enjoy this part of the book, which by the way, it permeates the entirety of this manuscript. I want to get into some FAQs. So all of the, all of the answers come from the book. But I'm trying to I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of people who are maybe interested, kind of interested, wanted, but they have questions. So I have I have a few. I pick my favorites because I already know your answers and they are brilliant. We'll see if you pick my answer. But do I ease in? Question number one: Do I ease in or do I just go cold turkey and just do it? I can't wait to hear your answer. Well, Mark, in one of the chapters, we talk about adoption models, and there's three of them. So you you start a new firm. Right. uh, You just spin out a new firm. The second model is you do this gradually in your existing firm, and you hope it just kind of grows and kind of overtakes the legacy operation. Or the third option is you kind of do what Adobe did. And when Adobe went to subscription, cloud-based for them, basically, but it was subscription, they said, at this future date, I think it was a year or two off, we are no longer selling software by the box. We're not going to support it. We're not going to upgrade it anymore. If you want to keep getting all the benefits of Adobe, plus all of its innovations, you're going to have to subscribe. 
And so they picked the future date. Now, by the way, a lot of DPC docs did this too. They were in a fee-for-service model. They took insurance. They took Medicare, all of that. And they said, as of such and such date was usually about a year away, we are going to be a DPC doctor. We're no longer taking insurance. We're no longer taking Medicare patients. We'll help you find other GPs. If you're Medicare, if you want to stay with us, then you know, you can, you can be a subscriber. So they did model C, they did the Adobe, but from all the empirical evidence that uh, the company Zora has looked at, and they have a, you know, they have thousands of subscription-based business model customers. So they can, they can see these transitions in real time. Uh, they said that the highest chance of success is to spin out a new firm. And so that's kind of what we're advocating for firms, because I think the subscription model is so different it requires you to go to the market with an uncommon offering that's plus. It requires different accounting. You saw the income statement. You know it's completely different. It's a forward-looking model. It requires completely different KPIs. I don't even know how you would consolidate a subscription income statement with a transactional. I mean, I know it could be done, but it would be kind of a mess, and the KPIs would be kind of confusing. And it'd be, I mean, it's kind of... I don't think it's possible for smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses to have two business models under one roof. I think that's really hard. It's kind of like having two spouses. You can do it, but you're probably not going to like the results. Um, So I think the highest chance of success for companies that are serious about disrupting their existing business model is to spin out a new firm. And as Andy Grove loves to say, and I, I love quoting him on this because it's such a great line. He said, if you're going to be cannibalized, it's better to dine with friends. I love it. I love it. Can, b- before we move on again, I love this section. And by the way, you passed, you, you got the answer, right? I can't move on without mentioning the target story. Can just real quickly, if for those who haven't read the book yet, explain the target story and Dayton stores. It's, it's excellent. And, and look, I take no credit for this. This is Clayton Christensen. It was actually a Harvard business review course that my good friend and colleague Rick Payne took. And as you know, Mark, those Harvard courses are outrageously expensive, um, you know, in the thousands. And um, he shared with me and he wrote it up on his blog. And I think that's what I quoted from in the book, but basically if, if you remember 1960, and I was born in 62, so I kind of remember this, you know, there was a department store in your town. You probably bought more than just your clothes there. You might have bought your toys there, and your dad might have bought oil there. I mean, they sold kind of everything. Well, there were 316 department stores in 1960, and Dayton Hudson was kind of in the middle of them. You know, they weren't the high end. They weren't the Neiman Marcuses. They, you know, Nordstrom, I don't know. If, I think Nordstrom was around then. I'm not sure. Um but they were kind of in the middle. And then there were these, these upstarts, you know, Kmart, there was uh, Walmart, which wasn't, you know, even a big thing until like the eighties or something. Of course there was Sears and all of that, but the CEO of Dayton Hudson realized we're getting squeezed being in the middle. You know, we can't be all things to all people. So he started a, a different brand and he went after the lower segment of the market because he he thought that's where the growth was. Now he started this new company in 1962 and he named it target (laughs) and it was so successful. Actually, you know, after Walmart took off and then of course Kmart and all of that, 
Target was like perfectly placed in between the Walmart lower class experience, if you will, uh, and Target being in the middle, you know, maybe not a Macy's or Neiman Marcus experience, but good enough for a lot of people that really enjoy Target and don't want to walk into a Walmart. Um, and by 2000, Target had completely cannibalized Dayton Hudson and they changed the name of the company to Target. And I think it's a great story because it's very rare in business to find a company that has disrupted itself. You know, most companies are killed by things that don't look like them. Airbnb, hotels, Uber, taxi cabs, you know, we can go down the list. Um, music industry, CDs and and streaming, or even Napster before streaming. Um, and it's really hard to disrupt yourself. And Dayton had the foresight to do that. I just think that's incredible. I think I'd heard this story by you and or Ed before, but this is the first time I had really taken time to study because when I looked at it, that I did some more reading. I, I'm a big Rita McGrath friend, friend or friend mm-hmm. fan, and she's written about it, and she might have taken that same course. I'm not teaching some of the modules on it, and it's 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 fist pump material. It's standing ovation material. So I just think as you're thinking about easing in, it's a great great story. Uh, next question. Now, this may not be a question that comes up. It should come up. And the reason I put this question in is because I actually wanted to help answer it. I wish I could have, because I have some opinions on it, rightly or wrongly, but what is intellectual capital? Because at the end of the day, if you're going to have this subscription model, you better have something that's worth selling. It goes back to that, that other question. What is the value to the customer? But I know a lot of firms maybe, okay, we do taxes, we do audits. Well, I take that back. Maybe not. We do taxes. We do other, uh, provide other types of uh, services. So isn't it important to really get a good handle on what is our intellectual property, right? Yes. Um, and intellectual capital incorporates the intellectual right. I, I, I'm, property. I'm, and I, sorry, I said that incorrectly. Intellectual right. capital. Thank you. And it, and and I use a definition, and I forget where I get this. It was at a conference, I think, on intellectual capital. Uh, and the definition is knowledge that can be converted into profits. Now, I would change that to knowledge that can be converted into value. But either way, um, because profits come from value, well, <clears throat> profits come from risk. But you gotta you gotta generate value. Um, and so intellectual capital is a phenomenal concept. And a, a, a guy named Eric Sevaby, who's an Australian writer, was the, was the gentleman who broke down intellectual capital into three components. <clears throat> There's human capital, which is 80% of the world's wealth, by the way, if you look at the G20 countries. There's social capital, which is your customers, which is your suppliers, the associations that you're a member of, uh, your alumni, people who used to work with you, uh, all of that. And we don't own our social capital. Nobody owns it. And then you have structural capital, which is everything that stays in your building, in your business, after the employees go home. So your marketing plan and your strategy and all the tools and software that you use and all that kind of thing. And I love that breakdown because it makes us think about how how can we work with these three because they're all interdependent and leverage them 
to create wealth for our customers. Human capital, obviously, in professional firms is the number one driver because it's so um, you know knowledge intensive. But um, it's being it, it being eighty percent of the world's wealth kind of leads us to the formulation that when you think about this at a macro level, not wealth equals knowledge because the caveman had the exact same resources as you and I do today, had the exact same number of atoms in the universe as we do today. I don't know, maybe a meteor hit our hit the earth and might've added some atoms. I'm not sure, but roughly the same, but he didn't have the knowledge of how to take those resources, combine them and do things like a combustion engine. So we can use oil under the ground on oil under the ground before the combustion engine was a nuisance. And so what, what makes our standard of living today different than the caveman is the knowledge we bring to bear on the resources. Uh, and, and we create new resources all the time. So knowledge equals wealth. Then that begs the question, well, where does growth come from? Well, growth comes from learning. And I don't mean book learning, although that can be part of it. And I don't mean taking a course, although that can be part of it too. I really mean entrepreneurial leaps, leaps into the future, leaps into the vistas of new discoveries where there's no guaranteed return, no guarantee of success. That's really what drives and propels an economy forward. So it's those entrepreneurial leaps. Because if you think about this deeply enough, and I owe all of this to George Gilder, my mentor for 42 years, he says, wealth is knowledge, learning or growth is learning, uh, meaning entrepreneurial leaps. Um, and knowledge is by definition about the past where entrepreneurship is about the future. I don't think there's a better formulation of the economy than that. If I had a footnote in this book talking about intellectual capital, my footnote would have been something like this. Professional firm, you need a framework, a mental construct, uh, a mental model or two that is incredibly valuable to your customer, number one. Number two, it needs to be very rare. Ideas are so, everyone's, a lot of professional firms, consulting firms copy one another, but this this mental construct that you have should be rare, which by the way, again, valuable to the customer and extremely hard to imitate, extremely hard to imitate and then number two or number four, something that can then be taught and trained to the other professionals in the firm to convey this to their customers. That's my footnote to intellectual capital. Do you want to beat me up on that? No, no, I like that. Um, I, I would add just one more sentence to your footnote, uh, which I, I believe because the plusing concept is so important that innovation is is critical. And, you know, innovation is the antithesis of efficiency. So one of my favorite definitions of strategy is the, uh, and it's from Jules Goddard, um, and I forget it exactly, I'm going to botch the the line, but it's something like a, a strategy is the art of staying one step ahead of needing to be efficient. Good one. I Good. love that definition. He's It's more eloquent in his words, but but that... This is why we see 20% Google time 
you know, take one day a week, work on whatever you want, do a moonshot project, do something that excites you or work with a team that excites you that are doing something cool. That's where we get new innovation. It, it's not just from doing the same old stuff. And when you apply that to the customer, like you were saying, this is why I think transformations are so important. It, it, it brings the value to a whole new level because if you listen to most professionals, they're, they're great problem solvers. And I'm not saying that we should stop solving problems. We can get the IRS off your back. We can, you know, lawyers can get you out of trouble. That, that, that's all really crucial to be a problem solver. But Mark, if that's all we do as professionals is solve problems, all we're, all we're doing is reverting the customer back to the status quo. We're not advancing them. Transformations allow us to advance them, to change them as a person, to make them healthier, wealthier, or wiser. Now, DPC docs can make you help healthier and keep you healthy. And I think uh, professionals can make us um, help the wealthier and wiser. And boy, when you do that, you actually change the person. Like Heraclitus said, you know, you can't step in the same river twice because one, the river's changed, but two, you've changed. Right. And that's the power of the transformation. Great, great point. If you're doing a workshop and it's it's a brand new group of people and they have all these questions and you don't even have a presentation, it's just, I'm going to answer your questions. One of the questions that's going to come up is, it's a how question. You just love how questions, don't you? Yeah, we love them. Yep. <laughs> the question will still come up. How do we go about pricing this subscription model? I have a sarcastic response to it. I'll keep it to myself. Oh no, please share it. I would love I would love it. I love sarcasm. Well tell me. When someone asks that question, I'll just say yes. Well how no just well and, and my point, and for people who know me, they know that what he really means is you're gonna screw it up. <laughs> so don't worry about uh perfection. In fact, you even said in the book progression is more important than, uh, perfection. So start don't, you know, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be some people that are really trying to flesh out, you know, you know, revenue, lifetime value per customer, but just start, it's going to be wrong to begin with. So just, just get started. And so that's my short answer. The first one was sarcastic, but I know that question is going to come up. Yeah, no, and I have been asked this question a lot. How do I price this? And especially when companies or firms have a, a large variance in the revenue that they're deriving from different types of customers. So I'll give you a, a, a real question I got at a workshop that I presented at. And this guy raised his hand. And he said, he says, I understand this for my customer, for my businesses that are in our sweet spot of I think a sweet spot was like three to seven million dollar size businesses. That was where they were really good, um, helping them grow, helping them avoid issues that you have at that that growth stage. Um, he said, "But we've also got a couple handful of people, businesses in the fifty to seventy five million dollar." He said, "What do I do about them? I can't I can't give everybody the same price." And it's like that's not a pricing question. That's a strategy question. Are you McDonald's? Are you Morton's? Are you a vegan restaurant? Are you sushi? Are you, you're trying to be all things to all people. I promise you, none of your food's going to be good. If you focus, then 
you're going to be, it's going to be much easier because you're going to have everybody on the rails. And so a lot of the pricing issues that people bring up and they bring them up, that's the first thing people jump to is the price. How do I price this? What about this? What about the one-offs? What about the, none of them are pricing questions. They're strategy and positioning questions. That is, And I just, are you McDonald's or are you trying to be Morton's? Cause you can't do both. And, and anytime we start talking strategy, we're going to start talking again. I'm, this is out of the book. We're going to get into segmentation as well. So your answer, I, I love, love, love the answer. And by the way, the end result needs to be such that, oh, by the way, if you've done this right, if you've done your strategy right, this can be a model where you're going to have at least 60 to 70% of utilization. And again, I'm not talking utilization from a mathematical standpoint. I mean, you're not going to be maxed out. That professional will not be maxed out. Right. There's going to be 40 to 30% of his or her time left for hopefully intellectual capital building on that. So that I think that has to be kept in mind. Uh, I have a, Oh, go ahead. That's a really important. No, I was just, that's a really important point, Mark, because the, especially from a professional firm, like a Dr. Paul, like a dentist, CPA lawyer, the last thing you want to hear from a professional, you know, when you have a toothache is, well, we can fit you in in a week. No, you should be able to fit me in now. You know, I always want my doctors, my uh, people to have capacity to service me, just like I always want my airline to have capacity. I And this is a true story. I called my doctor back in October, my eye surgeon, and I needed a new prescription. And, you know, if you wear glasses or contacts, you know what a pain in the butt all this is, right? It's a big process. There's a lot of shoe leather involved and a lot of bureaucracy, paperwork, blah, blah, blah. This is October. And he's, and his secretary tells me the doctor can't see you until late January, five months. I'm like, really? And I, and I kind of threw a hissy fit and she got me in on December 29th. When I saw my doctor on December 20th, I said, doc, I love you. I, if you told me to play in the traffic, I'd go play in the traffic, but buddy, you have too many patients. I should have a subscription lane where I can get right in front and see you same day if I need to. And he said, you're talking, you're talking like concierge doctors. And I said, no, I'm talking more like direct primary care doctors. Um, but you should do that because you're wasting my time. Now I had to go find another doctor, expend all this, you know, you wasted my time. That's the cardinal sin in today's world. And that's what we mean by upping the game and surfacing simplicity, give the customer convenience, peace of mind. They know they're in good hands. They know if they need you in a bind or, or an emergency, you're going to be there. I will pay dearly for that. So when people ask me about the pricing question, I usually come back. It's it maybe not as good as your yes um, answer, but I come back and say, what other business model will get you a three to five times pricing premium? You're going to do that bill in hours. You're going to do that with value pricing. Probably not. You can do it with subscription because you've plus the offering and you've surfaced simplicity and all these other things and customers will pay dearly for that. We, I think in today's world, we have, <laughs> there's a premium on all of our time. We'll pay big bucks to save time. This is why we love Amazon. <laughs> I get it the same day or the next day. So th- that's my that's my pitch on the pricing is what else is going to get you a premium like this? And that's going to more than cover for 
the out of scope things or the maybe the special requests that you have to do for a few customers, it's it's covered. And that's what we mean by pricing the portfolio. We're looking at the totality and the customer lifetime value. What subscription is really doing, it's building lifetime annuities that are worth more than the cost to acquire them. And that's going to make your firm more valuable when you go to sell it as well. I want to do a lightning round with you, but before we do so, I wish we could talk more about pricing. We actually have, we have done a show with you on pricing almost maybe two years ago. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. And then pricing has hit really hard uh, on your podcast. One of the, is one episode in particular, I learned a lot is one where I actually listened to it and sat down behind a desk and took notes. It was that good, but you got into pricing tiers. Pricing tiers is mentioned in the book. So I apologize if we do not discuss this, but just trust me that the section on pricing tiers, and it's not something where you just pick three tiers. I mean, there is thought put in because each tier is a bucket of value, a type of value, not in, not for the firm, but for the customer. There's a, a type of transformation, a type ideally. of transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you. And then also there's a section on purpose and profitability, and it has to be addressed when we talk about uh, pricing. Uh, you mentioned a Senator or a Congressman. There's a quote, both parties have to profit in this pricing subscription model where there's transformation, both parties have to profit. And I just thought, this is good. That got highlighted. I've gotten it written down. I think I've gotten a lot of that memory. That is such a great section in the book. I just want to thank you for including that in the book. Yeah. Oh, that, thank you. That's wonderful. And, and you know, both sides profiting is true no matter how what your business model is. Both sides, you know, this is what we call the double thank you moment, right? You hand your five bucks to the Starbucks. They hand you the coffee. You both say thank you. Well, that's strange, isn't it? If if only one of us made a profit, shouldn't somebody be saying you're welcome? But we both say thank you because we both believe we're better off. Yes. And that's always been true. Yes. You may have been one of the first people I did the lightning round with. And by the way, uh, I'm plagiarizing James Kramer. Uh, when I used to listen to his old radio show before he became famous and got on TV, he always had the lightning round. I don't know if he still has it on his TV show or not, but I love it. So yeah, I did it with you and you were great. So I'm just going to throw out a few words. You got like one minute because I'm watching the, the, the time here. So I'm going to throw out a few terms. Uh, we've not rehearsed for this. And if you need to say pass, uh, you can. Uh, I did have, by the way, plussing was on my lightning round. So I'm going to throw it out. So I'll start with the first one. Caterers versus line cooks. Just a quick, 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 quick. Anthony Bourdain's first book, Kitchen Confidential, talks about this, where him and a colleague just started a catering business, didn't have any customers, just did one party, but everybody was thrilled with it. And he talks about the difference between caterers being innovative. They're just positioned in the market differently than the line cook. Line cooks are kind of automatons. You don't, he says, you don't want a free, uh, no chef wants a free thinking line cook that's going to be creative and changes, you know, masterpieces. You, you just want somebody who's competent, but a caterer has got to bring a sense of art to it and professionalism and they bring more value. So they get paid more. I think it's a great story. I, I loved it. I again, highlighted it. Stop where I, where I was reading, 
did some searching that that's how good it was. Here's one of my favorites, one of my favorite terms in, in the book. And again, I did some other outside reading. Surrogation, if I said that correctly, surrogation. Yeah. When the, when the metric becomes the strategy, we saw this with Wells Fargo bank, you know, they had this policy of, we want to open up eight accounts per customer. In fact, they had a, they had a term for it internally. Great. You know, which meant eight, you know, we're going to have eight. And because they put a metric on it, um, people started, you know, if you put a metric on people, people are scamps. They'll figure out a way to game the metric. And sure enough, they opened up a bunch of accounts that were fraudulent, whatnot. Mark, it cost them billions of dollars. I lay out all the fines and all the reserves they had. Their auditors had to book, you know, to for future litigation. It's probably the most expensive metric in history or certainly one of them. Um, and surrogation is when the metric replaces the strategy. Wells Fargo didn't have an eight account per customer strategy. They had a strategy that said, we want to deepen our relationships with our customers. But the way they were going to measure that became what they did, which was we're going to measure that by saying, if every customer has eight, then we'll figure a deeper relationship. And the metric overtook the strategy. And this is why measuring what matters is so important because measurements, uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll be gamed. I promise you, we'll find a way to get, get around them. I want to throw out a couple of more. Uh, which one do I want to use? Oh, okay. This one insure, insure with a capital E insure with a capital E. Yes. Wow. I, 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 and, and again, I owe, I owe this to uh, Joseph Pine, but um, you know, if you, and he, he lays it out this way. So I'll, I'll, I'll quote from him, but um, it, insurance is when you're paid for uh, you know, a loss, like, like we all have insurance, but insure is when you're kind of guaranteeing an outcome or a result. And that's insurance with an E and that's why it fits so well with transformations. So it's a form of insurance, but I still think even the I fits because go back to my doctor example. I couldn't get into him for five months. If I was subscribing to him and I could see him in 24 hours to, in my mind, in my mental accounting, that would have been partly insurance. When I need him, he's there. I do this with my airline. My airline guarantees me a flight anywhere in the world. Even if I just show up 15 minutes before, you know, boarding, that's because they'll bribe somebody off the plane to put me on it. I've only had to pull that pick, uh, trigger a few times in my professional career, but I'm so glad I was able to, because usually it's a lot of money if somebody wants you on a short notice and it, that's a form of insurance. So I think both I and E insurance works in the subscription model with professional firms. I'm going to let you pick the last term for this lightning round, either <laughs> liminal thinking, either liminal thinking or, or battered patient syndrome. Oh, geez. Battered patient syndrome. I love, I mean, it's doctors doing things to us rather than for us. Uh, but, but look, liminal thinking, I love the concept of liminal thinking. It, it, you know, it means a, a boundary, a doorway, a portal, I, you know, maybe this is going to sound old fashioned. I don't, I don't know. But when you carry the bride over the threshold, this is what we mean. It's a new life. But until you do that, you're in that space in between 
you just got married, but you don't know what the future holds. It's not the new thing yet. It's not the old thing anymore. It's this space in between. It's this ambiguity, this disorientation. And this is what I feel when, when you confront people with a new business model like subscription, they, 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 they go into this liminal space and boy, if you're going to come out of that liminal space, I promise you, you're going to need to do some unlearning. And that's why I use liminal thinking in the last chapter in the book. Again, this, this is great. I, 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 I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. I feel feel like someone just give me like a a Roger Maris baseball card. You said you were born in (laughs) 62. So it made me think of 61. He hit 61 in 61. As a, as a customer of this book. So as a customer of this book, I want you to hear one of my thoughts as a customer of this book. Is, Is that okay? Sure. Absolutely. So again, I don't like to talk about myself, but here, here is something human from me. When I read nonfiction, I don't know, unless it, you know, if it's a memoir or a novel, I read from the beginning. But nonfiction, again, if it's not a memoir, autobiography, I, I will usually read from the back of the book and then work my way forward. I don't and look at the index. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and or the, yeah, the answer is yes. Yep. Don't ask me why. No one taught. I just, I just, I just do. So as I'm, as I'm wrapping up, getting to the first chapters, I'm already thinking that, dang, this book would be a great workshop. <laughs> well, then I get to the introduction and it's like, so Paul Dunn, your gifted co-author, also the co-author on The Firm of the Future, which is one of the best books, business books I've ever have read. It talks about, well, the first eight or nine chapters are uh, the keynote and then the rest is the workshop. And I'm just like, oh, I'm not as dumb as I, maybe I'm not as dumb as I look or talk. I'm, I'm just saying as a customer, yeah, this is a great book. But another opinion is, I think this book is really good if you had a mastermind, mastermind group over the course of a year where people get to collaborate. I just think what a healthy way to even get more out of this. Again, that's opinion. You can push back if you want. No, no, you read our mind. I mean, we are going to start, you know, we started the Time's Up pre-order club for people who pre-ordered the book and we're given, and we're still in that process of delivering uh, on our promise for that. We're going to have another session with me and Paul Dunn and, and Ed Class. We'll probably have two more actually uh, because it runs through, I think, the end of February. But then after that, we're going to start the Time's Up community. We haven't figured out a name yet, but that it's exactly what we want to do. We want to have a content, obviously, for every chapter. So we kind of walk them through every chapter, give them some specific to-dos or things to think about in their business if they're going to really be serious about moving to this, but then also get together as a community and talk about things and then also give them access to me and Ed if they have special questions. They, you know, A lot of people want to talk offline about certain things because it's confidential, as you know, and things like that. So we are going to be launching something probably a in March or April, somewhere around there to help firms that are serious about doing this. What's one of the most inspiring books you've read in the last year or last two years? Inspirational. I, I, you know, um, it, it was one I read last year and it's by a guy named Arthur Brooks. He used to be the president of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank. And it's called From Strength to strength 
finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. And Mark, this book is, if you're over the age of 40, it is going to be incredibly painful and uncomfortable for you to read because what he's talking about is your physical, your mental and physical capacities are deteriorating past that age. Your chance of innovation is greatly reduced. Um, you're, you're no longer able to just, you know, jump in and just do something wild, take a big risk or whatever. Now that's a strength in your youth, but you also have weaknesses in your youth and his point. That's why the book is strength to strength. When we get older, we're better able to synthesize information. That's why it's better to coach and mentor when you're a bit older, you have, you have wisdom, you know, yes, you're less of a risk taker. Maybe you're less adventurous, but you have wisdom. You've seen things, you can synthesize things. You can still write books. I mean, this guy is, I think he's around my age. He's proof. He's, he's written some great books, but this strength to strength is a book. I wish I would have read in my twenties and understood this, what my future was going to be in the next 20 years, what I should have been doing in that 20 to 40 year period. But then what I really love about it is he tells you, he gives you some ideas for what you can do from moving from strength of your youth to strength of your older age. And uh, it's profound. The book is absolutely profound and totally uncomfortable. I'm reading it. I'm reading it. Ron, this is excellent. This, this is transformational and I cannot thank you enough. You are the best. Thank you, Mark. This has been such an honor. I, you know, I listen to your show every week. I'm, I'm addicted to it. I love it too. You do a great job interviewing these authors and you get the best books out. And by the way, you've, you've, you've exploded my anti-library just so you know, I just finished the book. Um, what is it? Unreasonable hospitality. Will Degara, and, Will Gadara, he's a, he is yeah. a great human being. Yeah, and that was a great read, and I've I've read several others too, and I'm and I've got several in my anti library. So thank you for reading all these books for us. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf: Lifelong Learning for Financial Leaders, and now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I know you've got people in your life when you are around them, you just want to listen. And that's exactly how I feel when I'm around Ron Baker. I just want to listen. Just Ron, keep talking. Just keep talking. Uh, just what a, what a man of, of deep, deep wisdom. If and when you read this book, Time's Up, it's going to require an investment, an investment of your time, It's going to require a lot of deep thinking and persistence when you're reading the book. And then after you read the book, as you start putting these ideas into action, into motion, I want to wrap up. I I typically don't like to read directly from a book, but this is appropriate. It's page 324, and it's in the next to last chapter. Ron is saying that him and his co-author, Paul Dunn, they've done their best to provide us, the readers, with some how-to ideas in complete alignment. And I'm paraphrasing, in alignment with Peter Block and Peter Drucker about the importance of finding your own path. 
after working with thousands of professional firms around the world, we've learned that no two paths to a business model transformation are ever the same. There is simply no one right way. There is no checklist with 10 things to do to change. And I can, I can just hear Ron saying that right now. I can visualize it. I can visualize his nonverbals. And he goes on to say, I believe that has only worked once involving Moses with the stone tablet. You need to discover your own path to a business model of subscription. It's all about transformation. Ron Baker and Paul Dunn, very, very well done. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.